Christmas Day. Um, it is Christmas Day and we remember the birth of Jesus, named Jesus, as Matthew's Gospel tells us, because he will save his people from their sins. And that should make us sit up and pay attention. That, that is what Christmas is about. And whenever we hear the name Jesus, we should think sin is a real thing. He can't come and save us from our sins if sin is not real, if it's just something made up. And whenever we hear the name Jesus, we should also think being saved from sin is a real thing. Forgiveness is possible. And we celebrate it at Christmas. We celebrate uh, Jesus come to save his people from their sins. Uh, but it's worth us asking, is that something that we buy into? Is it something that we think worth celebrating? Uh, j- just as we sit here before we really kind of get into it this morning, just ask yourself in the quiet of your heart, why is forgiveness of sin a good thing? Now, you know, personally, ask yourself, would it, why would it be a good thing for you to have your sin forgiven. This morning we're in Isaiah chapter 12. This is um, the conclusion of the first major part in Isaiah. It began at the beginning of chapter 2 where there's a little kind of editorial comment that said, this is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then we heard what he saw and that's gone on and on. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we get another one of those markers kind of closing off the section. So chapter 12 is the conclusion of a section. Um, And it concludes with a song. Um, I I think this is probably one of the first, if not the first, Christmas carol. Um, If you ask the internet when the first Christmas carol came, they would suggest, I, I checked something in the fourth century, and the internet again is wrong. I think this is probably one of the first carols. Uh, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and it is a song. Uh, Just look with me at what we have. There are kind of two sections clearly marked out in verse 1 and verse 4 with those words, in that day you will say. It's a song about that day. Which day? Well, it's the day that Isaiah has just been writing about. You might remember that as we've gone through Isaiah, we've been exploring the great promises in chapter 9 and chapter 11, promises that a king is coming, promises that into the darkness, the light is going to shine, the light is going to shine because a child is born, a son is given, who will be the king of peace, who will govern over an eternal kingdom with no end. A king is coming. We saw more in chapter 11 that out of the ruins of a fallen people, out of the ashes from the stump will rise up this great king, this king like no other, ruling over a kingdom with no end. Chapter 11, verse 10 says, In that day, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. In that day, the king will come and he will rise up and draw all the people to himself. Chapter 12 is a Christmas carol because it is to be sung about the coming of this king into the world. Isaiah 12, on that day, the day when the king has come, this is what you will sing, this is what you will be saying. We'll see that it is a song sung by those who come to the king. Those, as chapter 11 said, are are being gathered in from the four quarters of the earth. Uh, We would say today it's the song that is sung by the church. When the king comes, what will be said? What will they be saying? 
as we come into it. Let's make sure we're really landing it right so we're hearing it in the way we should. The king has come. That's happened. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. The day spoken of then is the day in which we are now. What can we be saying? That's what Isaiah 12 is saying. What should be the talk of the church? It's important to ask that because what we talk about shapes us. We, we live in a world where stories are how we navigate life. We are immersed in different stories. And over the last few weeks, the story around us, as Mark's already been saying, is the story of Christmas. Everyone's talking about it. So many conversations are, what are your plans for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? How long is it until Christmas? Wherever we've been going, the story of Christmas is coming at us. We see it on the, the lights, on the houses, the decorations in the houses, the, the TV adverts, the, the music, the shops. It is everywhere the talk is Christmas. And even if you hate Christmas, you have to deliberately abstract yourself away from everything else because the conversation shapes us. The talk around us at the moment is all Christmas. Now, of course, with a little reflection, we see that it is Christmas in a particular way. A Christmas, perhaps, without much of Christ and with a lot of consumerism. But the story is affecting us. It, it, it directs us to what we should value, to what we should notice. Uh, it ignores some things and, and highlights other things. It shapes how we feel and how we think. Our stories matter. And surely, then, the true story of everything is the one that we want to be telling and hearing so chapter 12, what should be our story? What should be the talk of the church now that the king has come? Uh, and another thing to note before we really get into the detail is in this song, there are different conversations. Now, verse 1 says, in that day you will say, and here it is talking to an individual, what, what the person on their own will say in verse 1. They will say, I will praise you, Lord. They're speaking to the Lord. It's a conversation between one person and the Lord. But then as we go through, when we get to verse 3, this individual who's still speaking is now speaking to you, and it is plural. And so verse 3 is a conversation between an individual believer and other believers. And that continues into verse 4. In verse 4, in that day you will say, but this time the you is a, a group, it's a plural. And verse 4 is believers speaking to other believers. And, and then to wrap it up in verse 6, when it, it has, still has these believers speaking, but now they're speaking to the people of Zion. But literally it is the individual females, women, who live in Zion. It kind of matches verse 1, which is a masculine singular, but the point is, there's a whole range of different conversations happening, and we'll see that as we go through. So what is the chat all about? The king has come in that day. And what can the church be saying? Well, two things, two parts we're going to be thinking about. First of all, what can we be saying to God? And then what can we be saying to one another? First of all, what can we be saying to God? As I said, the song begins with an individual speaking directly to God, saying, I will praise you, Lord. Praise. What is praise? We talk about it, don't we? What is it? Uh, praise is, is when we express how much something means to us, what value we give to something. Now, when we see something that is brilliant, spontaneously, we praise it. 
Now, when your team scores, when, when your team scores, you don't stop and think, ah, what should I do now? My, my team has scored. What is the, the way that I should respond? You don't do that. When, when your team scores, you leap up and you shout and you celebrate. And the more skillful the goal or the more important in the game, the more your enjoyment erupts. A few months ago, I saw a group of otters playing in the river. And I was very excited by this. So excited that just afterwards, I walked along and I did something very uncharacteristic. I walked up to a dog walker and I said, I've just seen some otters. I was so excited about it. If you saw me in that week, you would have heard, I had seen some otters. Um, no, we, we can't help but express the things that we enjoy. Now, on that day, says this, this chapter, when the king has come, we can say, I will praise you, Lord. Now, on that day, we can find the Lord to be of such value to us that our enjoyment of him erupts. Now, why would it do that? Well, well the song tells us. What's the next line in the song? Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. That is the story of every Christian ever. And for those of us trusting Christ today, it is our story. This is our song. This is the song that we can sing. It's the reality for us that although you were angry with me, and for all of us who are Christians, it's where our stories began. We were lost in our sin. We groped in the darkness. We followed our first parents, refusing God in our lives. We look back and we realize that with every breath, we were trying to un-God God and rub out his existence. But sin has no place in God's world. Sin provokes his perfect justice into anger. We know a bit of that in ourselves. If we, if we see a, a bully pounding and someone smaller than themselves, there's a rage which burns inside us. And it's a tiny reflection of the anger that God has towards sin. When we were in chapter 11, we saw that for the world to be remade in, in perfection, so that every relationship is love and there's no harm and there's no damage being done one to another. But for that to happen, we saw, first of all, there must be a clearing up of the mess. For the, for the king, when he comes in perfect justice, he will first remove wickedness from the world. And the anger that God has is a constructive anger because it justly removes every trace of wrong in the world. The problem, of course, though, is that we are each riddled with that wrong. Like woodworm in an old tree, and we, the, the wrong must be removed. So the anger of God is turned towards us in our sin. And we saw back in chapter 9 how the hand of the Lord's anger is raised up against us, ready to fall and remove us from the world. The song says, you were angry with me. Justice had demanded the payment of my life in eternity. Now that's where our stories began, but it's not where our stories end. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. Uh, the Lord Jesus told a story of a man who owed a great debt to the king. 10,000 bags of gold he owed and he couldn't pay it. Uh, and this man was summoned to the king. He was called to account and he had no, no leverage as he came before the king. 
And as he came before him, his stomach must have churned and he would have shook in his terror, knowing his life was over because he could never repay what he owed. And he goes before the king and he admits that he cannot pay. And the king, says Jesus in his story, cancels the debt. Imagine that rush of utter relief. That debt that defined him, the debt that crushed him, the debt which swallowed up his hope, it was gone, cancelled. This is the song of the church. God was angry with us because of our sin and he has turned his anger away. How could he do that? It's not like we can wind back the clock and somehow undo what we've done or or unspeak what we've said or unthink what we've thought. How can he turn his anger from us? Isaiah's own story helps us, I think. We saw back in chapter 6 that Isaiah has this vision of God in his exalted glory. He sees God high, lifted up in his infinite holiness. And Isaiah sees God like that and Isaiah is crushed by the weight of his sin. And he cries out, he says, I am undone. I'm unclean, I'm lost. Because my sin and God's holiness cannot exist together. One or the other must go and God is going nowhere. So me and my sin are doomed. And then in his vision, one of the mighty angels, the seraphim, goes to the altar, goes to the place of sacrifice and lifts a coal and carries it and touches Isaiah's mouth and says, See, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. How can the anger of God be turned away? Or when there's a sacrifice, when there's a place for the anger to go, See, if God's anger turns from us, it must go somewhere else. Later on, Isaiah will speak in chapter 53 of the Lord's servant, the servant of the Lord. The coming king is given a new title. And our sin will be transferred onto him, we will hear. And God's anger will follow the sin like a heat-seeking missile. And when our sin is put on the king, the anger of God is turned from us and onto him. And that is why the church can sing. Because the day has come when the king has been born into the world and he's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He will save us from our sin by taking the sin from us and putting it on himself. In that day, the day when the king has come, the king has come, And he's been born and he was born to die so he can take away from us all that our sin deserves. So he can put it onto himself. And that great debt, 10,000 bags of gold, a debt unimaginably payable. A debt we could never pay. It would take forever for us to pay. But that debt is cancelled because the king has come. Come to pay the debt for us. And so we sing. You were angry with me, but your anger has turned away. Why would God do that? Well, well, let's see. The next line in the song tells us. It tells us he did it so that you might comfort me. Comfort me. Now, every time you've ever seen another person in distress and long to comfort them. Uh, Every time you've had that ache just to wrap someone in your arms and tell them that it will be okay. That 
that thing that happens in us, that, 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 that deep, overwhelming emotion is just a tiny glimmer, a tiny glimpse, but a drop in the ocean of the infinite compassion of God. And he does all of this because it is in his heart to comfort you. He aims to comfort. He doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want us to be gone. He wants us to be comforted. You see, he sees us in our darkness. He knows our distress. He knows our distress more deeply than we know, and it is in his heart to bring comfort. And what is the comfort that he brings? It's important that we ask that. What is the comfort that God wants to bring to us? Uh, the film Braveheart, if you know it, tells the story of freedom. Freedom is the great theme of the film. Uh, it tells how the Scots have been cruelly oppressed by their English overlords, uh, and then William Wallace uh, leads a rebellion to fight back against them. Uh, but it tells the story of freedom, and it's the story of our lifetime. We love stories about freedom. We love stories about fighting against the oppressors. Uh, I mean, we love it because it taps into deep longings within us taps into the deep, the true story of all history, the oppression of our sin that crushes us and we long to be freed. In the film, William Wallace says to the Scottish army, they may take our lives, but they shall never take our freedom. His dying words, spoiler, he died. Uh, his dying words, freedom, freedom. We love freedom. It's a delicious concept, isn't it? But, but we can spend so long looking at what we want to be free from that we don't often ask, what do we want to be free for? Now, sadly, so often the cycle of freedom goes from being from fr freed from one thing to be led under the oppression of another, and it goes round and round and round. What is freedom for? And why is it good news to have your sins forgiven? Now, what is so good to have God's anger turned away? Well, the answer here in this song is comfort. God wants to comfort. It's freedom for comfort. But what is the substance and character of the comfort? Well, verse 2, the next line, begins emphatically. Surely, it says, behold, look at this. I'm going to drive your attention to this. This is where the comfort is found. God is my salvation. That's where the comfort is found. God is my salvation. Now imagine, this, this might be hard um, for some of us, imagine somebody totally stressed in the build-up to Christmas. And, um, and then for this person, imagine for them, their Christmas plan is to go away to a little cottage and they think, when I get there, when I get there, all the busyness and the rush and the hustle and bustle will be over. When I get there, when I arrive at that location, the holiday can really begin. And for that person, their salvation is a place. Or... Again, if you can imagine with me somebody totally stressed in the build-up to Christmas, they've got loads of relatives coming to visit, and their house is an absolute mess. And they're so stressed about this, this, this mess of a house and all these people coming, and then they get a phone call just out of the blue. Uh, they have been randomly selected to have their home cleaned top to bottom. Uh, the message says, pop out for a coffee. When you come back, it will all be done for you. Now, for that person... Their salvation is an action. It's something done for them. Import those ideas into our Christian hope. You see, for some Christians, the, the focus of salvation, when we think about salvation, we're, we're always thinking about somewhere. 
a place. We're, we're thinking about getting to this place, to heaven. Uh, salvation is about being in that new creation we heard about last time. A salvation is a place. There are other Christians in the kind of center of gravity when they think about salvation is thinking about what has been done to get us there. A salvation, we, we always come back to what God has done in Christ so that our sins are forgiven. Salvation is about what is done. Now those things are both very good and very true, but if that is it, something has gone a bit wonky. What is good about having sins forgiven? What is good about getting to heaven? Is salvation just a place and an action? Verse 2 says, no, God is my salvation. Salvation is not some place. It's not some deed. Ultimately, it is someone. It's a great deed that was done. Uh, 1 Peter 3 says, the great deed of Christ, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the purpose was to bring you to God. And when we get to heaven, what will make heaven heaven is that there we can be with God. God is my salvation. There are great blessings that flow from the fact that God is our salvation. Verse 2 goes on and says, I will trust and not be afraid. Not that there are no longer things that are uh, fearful, but if God is my salvation, the fearful things will not win. If God is my salvation, as Romans 8 says, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, if God is my salvation, then there is nothing in all creation that can possibly separate me from his love. He is my salvation. <clears throat> uh, long before the time of Isaiah, when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, the Lord came to rescue them and he said, he said to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go, set them free. But he didn't stop there. He wasn't just interested in freedom from something. He was interested in freedom for something. He said, set them free so that they can come and worship me. God wanted to, to bring his people to himself. He was their prize and their reward. And when he rescued them through the parting of the Red Sea, as they came through to safety on the other side, Moses led the people in a song of praise. Now that song of praise of Moses is what Isaiah uh, builds into his own song here. He quotes from, uh, from Exodus 15 in verse 2 here. He puts an added emphasis on the Lord, the Lord himself. And what does it mean that God is my salvation? What it means is that he is everything to me. He is my strength. All my security, all my confidence doesn't need to be found anywhere else. It can always and only be found in the Lord. And he's not just my strength, he's my defense, or I think better, my song. You ask me why that is afterwards if you like. But he is my strength and he is my song. The delight of my heart and the happiness of my soul. Because God is my salvation. It's repeated again, isn't it, at the end of verse 2. He has become my salvation. God couldn't give any more, could he? A God who is himself, boundless joy and infinite beauty. There's nothing greater in existence than God. He gives himself to be our salvation. He gives himself so that we can be totally secure and totally happy in him forever. That's the comfort that he brings. In that day, says the song, 
Christmas Day, the day when Jesus comes, you can speak to God personally and directly. You can say to God, I will praise you, Lord. We can find the Lord to be of such value. Uh, we can see his true value and our enjoyment of him erupts. We can say these things. But I wonder this morning if this is your song. Now, is, is this what your heart is resonating with? Saying, I will praise you, Lord. You were angry with me, but you turned your anger away onto your own dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you did it so you could comfort me. Comfort me with countless, endless comfort, indestructible comfort. Because you yourself are my salvation. Sometimes it is the case that our enjoyment of him erupts. With all our heart, we say to him, I praise you, Lord. And we can't help it. But I don't know what it's like for you. For me, those times are few and far between. Now, we have to wonder, what do we do when we hear this song and we can't quite catch the tune? And we can't quite join it. What do we do when... When our praise is at best muffled, that can be quite alienating for us. We, we kind of plod through week after week. And, and if we're honest, the Lord is not my song. The, the droning of life's troubles is drowning out any song of praise. And any praise is hard fought. And I just feel like I'm losing the battle. And, and then we come together. And we come together and sometimes it can seem like everybody else is praising and enjoying and, and everyone else is having this wonderfully close walk with the Lord and I feel like an imposter. Now if you recognise any of that, then you are not alone. And this song helps us. It helps us because this song reminds us that we are not alone. I, I think one of the most dangerous things in the Christian life is to stop this song at the end of verse 2. One of the most dangerous things is to think the Christian life is about me on my own and the Lord and nobody else. But this song doesn't just show what we can be saying personally to the Lord. It also shows what we can be saying to one another. Um, imagine with me that it is a baking hot day. The sun is beating down on you and you think... I'm going to go for a walk in the hills. I'm going to go into the mountains, actually. I'm going to go somewhere where there's some, some proper mountains, and I'm going to walk, and it's a beautiful day, and, and you're having a, a wonderful time. And then on your walk, you, you discover this bubbling little spring, and, and you pause there. You, you pause at the spring. You put down your pack. You take off your shoes. You, you bathe your face in the water. You drink deeply, and you're refreshed head to toe, and you, you, you wash your feet in it, and you just rest by this water wonderfully refreshing, deliciously refreshing. And that after you've rested, uh, you, you head back out to enjoy the rest of your day. You, you haven't gone long, much longer on the track when, when you come across a couple of walkers who are in trouble. They're in real trouble. You can tell straight away. They're kind of almost crumpled on the edge of the path. They're faint. They're dehydrated. It's getting pretty dangerous. When you see them, what do you say? You could say nothing. You could do the other side of the road thing. You could go up to them and reprimand them. No. Didn't you check the weather? What kind of idiots are you to come out ill-prepared in the mountains? Bring enough water. You'll know better next time. And 
then walk off shaking your head. Of course you don't do that, do you? You don't do that at all. You say, hey, just over here, there's this lovely spring. It's just what you need. Let me show you how to get there. You can be refreshed and rehydrated. It's going to be wonderful. In that day, the day when Jesus has come, this day we can be saying words of praise to God. God is my salvation. But in verse 3, we can also be saying words to one another. Verse 3, still under that heading of what the individual will say, but now saying to other believers. What can we say to others? We can say, with joy, you will, or maybe better, you can draw water from the wells of salvation. Literally, verse 3 is, and you can draw waters with joy from the springs of salvation. You can, it's available. Drink from salvation. What is salvation? Well, we've just seen, haven't we, in verse 2. God is my salvation. You can draw waters from the spring. That is God. You can enjoy God. He's not angry with you. He's turned his anger away from you. You don't need to be crushed by your guilt anymore. He wants you to know his comfort. He wants you to trust him. He doesn't want you to be in dread. He doesn't want you to be in fear. He wants you to know that he will be your strength and he will be your song. When you're faint on the way and your feet are, are blistered and burning and the journey seems too much, you can come and drink from his endless supply because he is for you. And we need this. We need it, don't we? Our praise is not perfected, is it? Our spiritual sight is blurry and we miss what is still most wonderful. We need others to just come alongside us and remind us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the Second World War and he said this. He said, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. That's what verse 3 is getting at. We need other believers around us. In fact, Bonhoeffer goes on and says, a a Christian needs another Christian who will speak God's word to them. Because we get uncertain and we get discouraged. But he says, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, his brother's is sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet together as bringers of the message of salvation. That's why we come together. We are brought together as bringers to one another of the message of salvation. Brought to come alongside one another and say, God is my salvation and you can drink from the wells of salvation. I I think we struggle to believe this, to be honest. I I think we might think that that is true for others. But but I think... uh, Easily we can think that we don't really need other believers, or maybe more often we think other believers don't need us. Other believers may need other believers, but other believers don't need me. Now I guess we see what we believe when we look at what we prioritize. Verse 3 says that in the day that Christ has come, we have to be speaking these truths to one another. And and it's verse 3 that sets up the second part of the song. Because in verse 4, it's now speaking to the whole group, the whole church, speaking to one another. And what is the whole church to be saying to one another? Well, we're simply to encourage each other to do what verse 1 says, aren't we? Verse 1, I will praise the Lord. Verse 4, we say to one another, give praise to the Lord. 
You see, it's showing that praise isn't yet spontaneous. And we need to encourage each other to do it. Verse 6 picks up the, the same thing with the group speaking to one individual, saying, shout aloud and sing for joy. Celebrate, celebrate. Why? Because of who you are. You are the people of Zion. That's what the community of believers is. The, 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 the people of Zion, because great is the Holy One of Israel among you. It's brilliant. You know, uh, Isaiah 6, again, told us of the, the, the exalted glory of God. In Isaiah 6, he had this vision of God as indescribably other. That's what holiness is. It means the complete otherness of God. He is the Holy One. He's fundamentally separated from creation in every sense. Uh, Isaiah saw the vision of God and his holiness. He saw God is only far, far away. But in that day, says chapter 12, that will change. In that day, when the, the day when the king has come, God will no longer only be far away because the king has come, the child born, the son given, is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. The great triumph of grace is that in the person of Jesus, God has come to live with us. It's the great glory of Christmas that the baby in the manger is the Lord of heaven. You see, when, when Matthew records the birth of Jesus and says he'll be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, he then quotes from Isaiah and says, but he will also be called Emmanuel, God with us. Because that's what it is to be saved from our sins. God is my salvation. God is with us and among us. So in that day, God came to live among us. And now the Lord Jesus Christ has been lifted on high and from on high poured out his spirit so that he himself, God himself, might be closer to us than we are to ourselves. We are the place, the church is rightly called the temple, the place where God has come to live. And verse 6 says, since that is true, shout aloud and sing for joy. Again, believers, encouraging each other to enjoy if we don't take that seriously, we might want to wonder if there was any point in Jesus coming at all. And what, what is the point in Christmas if we don't bother to encourage one another to enjoy the blessing that Christ is? It's like getting to the end of Christmas Day and not bothering to unwrap any presents and then throwing them all away. If we did that, we might want to say, what was the point of giving presents if we didn't enjoy them? What's the point of God giving his son into the world if we don't help each other to enjoy him? We need one another to be saying, remember and rejoice. God has come for us. But there is something else we can be saying to one another. Look at verse 4. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Now remember, again, this is what believers are to say to one another. We're to encourage one another to make the wonders of his grace known. Uh, the word that we use when we talk about speaking to people who aren't Christians about Jesus is the word evangelism. Um, the word evangelism often fills Christians with dread. Um, Im imagine a, a Christmas dinner with me. Um, and imagine that what people say is true 
Uh, people say sprouts are disgusting. That is not true, but people say it and they believe it. So, so imagine that idea is real. Now, the idea of evangelism can often feel like having Brussels sprouts on your plate. And we, we do it because we feel we must, we want to keep up the tradition. It's necessary but nasty. Now, we don't think of evangelism very often like pigs in blankets. Uh, even vegetarians like pigs in blankets. They are the crown, the jewel of the Christmas dinner. Um, the lovely bit, aren't they? And we don't tend to think of evangelism like pigs in blankets. We think of it like sprouts because, because it's hard, and it is hard. And we want to tell people about Jesus, but people don't want to know. And, and so we do it because we have to. We do it because we love people. We want people to know how good Jesus is, but it's just hard. But in Isaiah 12, well, this is all about praise. In Isaiah 12, evangelism is praise. Uh, in John Stott's commentary on Romans, he, he speaks about what is the greatest motivation for evangelism, and he explores some options. He speaks about the motivation of obedience. The Bible says we should, and so obedience is a good motivation. And th then he speaks about the motivation of love for the lost, which is so important and grips our hearts so much. We, we really want people to know about Jesus because we love people. But then he says, but perhaps the highest motivation, and he's speaking about Romans 1 verse 5, is for the sake of Christ's name. And, and, and Stott writes this, he writes, the highest motivation is zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we see here in, in Isaiah 12. That the praise and delight in the Lord overflows to making him known to others. And, and it raises the question, doesn't it? What do we say to one another to encourage us in our personal witness? As we try to talk to people about Jesus, as we want to talk to people about Jesus, how do we encourage each other? Does our encouragement of one another sound like, eat your sprouts? You better do this. It's nasty, but necessary. Or can we make it sound a bit more like pigs in blankets? But Jesus is good. He's really, really good. And for his sake, because he means so much to us, let's speak about him to others. In, in fact, when verse 5 says, see verse 5, it says, sing to the Lord. There's no preposition there, actually. You better could say, sing the Lord. Not singing to him, but sing him. He's the subject of our song. The content of the song, our evangelism, is to be celebrating the goodness of the Lord to others. Now, if you, if you look through the history of this country, you will see there have been times of, of great turnings to the Lord Jesus. Uh, in different parts of the world, that happens right now. But today, in our time and place, uh, we don't see as much of that as we might like. Uh, in our time and place, it can feel pretty discouraging when we think about sharing the good news with others. And I think verse 5 helps us to be hopeful with this. Right at verse 5. Sing the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Uh, as it's Christmas time, I ask you just to indulge me for a brief moment. Because I got quite excited when I looked at the phrase, let this be known. Because the verb form is quite unusual there. I had to look it up, and I looked up, and, and the books tell me that it has the scent of a Latin gerundive. That's exciting, isn't it? Really exciting. I'll I, I tell you what that means. What it means is, when, when you sit down to your Christmas dinner tomorrow, all the food will be on the table in front of you. 
and that food is going to be consumed. It's not just going to stare at it and leave it. It exists in a state of going to be consumed, right? That is going to happen. But that's what the gerundive means. So what verse 5, I think, is saying is giving us an assurance that the whole world exists as a place where the glorious things of God will be known. Uh, We were told that in chapter 11, verse 9, when it said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, The new world we saw will be a place where everyone everywhere will know God and enjoy friendship with God. Uh, And we saw then in chapter 11 that that follows the judgment, that there are some who refuse friendship with God and will refuse to their dying day and will have no place in the world to come. But there are others who will trust the Lord, who will believe on Jesus and find an eternal home in the new world. But one way or the other, all the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and the glorious things that he has done will be celebrated and enjoyed forever and ever, so we can sing the Lord. We can sing about him, and we can sing about him even when our voice is small and it feels like no one listens. And we can sing and we can celebrate what our God has done even when we struggle to find the words and even when we feel like we get battered back with objections. We can keep singing. Keep singing about the goodness of our Jesus who is our King and our Saviour. Even when it feels like everyone around us has covered up their ears. We can keep singing because we know what the world will be. And we sing because we know that this song will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Uh, the other songs around us, they will come and they will go. Uh, and, uh, and kingdoms around us, they will rise and they will fall. And fads and fashions, they will come and they will go. And ideas and philosophies, they will come and they will go. But this song, the song of the redeemed, the song of the citizens of the kingdom of Christ, this song will go on and on and on because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, this day, the day that began at Christmas, we can say to God, you are great. We can say to one another, remember, God is great. And we can sing to the world, you too can know that God is